0: a seventh story window, throwing parties in a 10 by 7 cell, it's astounding, the legs I'll go, oh, oh. to convince the whole damn world I don't need anybody's help, yeah I am waving while i try. don't bother swimming it to save me, I will only drag you down, I'll try to use your body as a life raft, cause if there's room enough for one there I'll sail the good ship you into the sunset, sipping on savory water till my liver turns blue. Canada. Singing, hey, 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 all right, yeah, I wrote that one myself. It's so a stand it the lengths I'll go <sighs> to convince the whole damn world I don't need anybody's help.
1: Oh, fuck. Oh, oh. All right, put down your pens, put down your pencils, step away from the keyboards and settle in for this week's episode of the Writer's Block. First and foremost, allow me to thank Don and Sally Wright for giving birth to me, because without them, none of this would be possible. Uh, also, thanks to Muddied Waters Media for allowing me to do this show. And yes, I understand the irony because it's my company. Uh, and finally, allow me to thank Stateside Kava for the Cava that I am drinking on today's episode. To everybody above Bula Vinaka. Today, I'm very happy to bring on my guest. Uh, She is Hannah Cox. She is the National Manager of Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty. She was previously Director of Outreach for the Beacon Center of Tennessee, a free market think tank. And before that, she was the Director of Development for for the Tennessee Firearms Association and a Policy Advocate for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. She has a Newsmax column called "Life and Liberty," so check that out. Allow me to welcome on my guest, Miss Hannah Cox. Hannah, thank you so much for coming on. How are you today?
2: Thanks for having me. I'm good. I'm house sitting for my parents right now in South Carolina, so I've got a lot more space than I'm used to this week, and I'm loving it. (laughs) Yeah,
1: no, that's amazing. That half of so muddied waters, uh, muddied waters media right now consists of uh, me, Spike Cohen who hosts my fellow Americans on Wednesday and uh, Jason Lyons, who hosts uh, Mr. America, the bearded truth on Mondays and Fridays. They're both in South Carolina and I'm here in Florida. So like most of this company is located where you are right now.
2: Got The coast covered.
1: Yeah. Um, So you and I met at Yalcon in Reston, Virginia. Uh-huh. in DC uh, last end of last summer I don't remember what it was exactly uh,
2: yeah,
1: right, right there. Here. it was yeah Some it was that was past Matt's issue um <laughs> but there is a relatively decent chance that we have crossed paths before and probably multiple times
2: <laughs> probably very often now that you've made this connection for me because you used to work at. What is arguably one of my favorite restaurants in Nashville, and where I wish I didn't have to admit I spent as much time as I did, but I spent a lot of time there. It's called Mafiosas, and I love the Mafia, I'm very fascinated by it. So, that not alone brought me in. And then it was sort of a libertarian hangout, yep. you know, night a month first uh libertarian group, Liberty on the Rocks. And then also, they just have amazing pizza, they have two for ones on Tuesday nights. So, yeah, for the past 12 years since college, I've been a lot of money there
1: (laughs) yeah that tuesday nights were the bane of my existence
2: (laughs) i can't even imagine
1: (laughs) like and this is probably going to be the least libertarian thing i've ever i'm ever going to say on any show that we have on the uh, on this channel but there were tuesday nights where i considered learning how to pickpocket (laughs) So when you would go through the large crowds of people, I would just start taking wallets from people because I hated every college kid that was in there.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, back in the day when I was in college, Nashville was so small. It didn't have that many restaurants. And it certainly, who else did two for ones?
1: Right. So so it
2: was, (laughs) you went on Tuesday nights, there was a cop. I remember people used to ID you to get in and make sure you were 21. It was a thing to go to Mafios on Tuesday. Yeah.
1: That was, uh, his name was Matt. Um, his name was Matt. Many people referred to him as hot cop. Uh, (laughs) he had a, at one point he had a Craigslist missed connection written about him.
2: (laughs) That's been my goal all my (laughs) life. Connection on Craigslist about me.
1: And yeah, I can't remember who found that, but man, we printed that out. And every Tuesday we would have those things plastered where he would stand. And he was, he did not, he he did not enjoy that.
2: He Never plotted my fake though.
1: No, nice guy. Super nice yeah. guy.
2: And I appreciate it. Because it was like a year and a half expired and looked nothing like me. So I think he was giving me a break. <laughs> I mean, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a plausible ID. Right. No.
1: Yeah. M- most of the people that showed up there, I was like, well, they've been ID'd outside. I'm not worrying about it. But I know for right. certain that person is not old enough to be here.
2: <laughs> not your problem anymore.
1: Yeah, no, not my issue. Uh <laughs> But yeah, no, like when we first became friends on Facebook, like we had all the obvious ones. And then I started seeing all the others and I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) That person I have never had a discussion about politics with. And that's really interesting. And then I started seeing more and I was like, oh, I know where she went to school immediately. Belmont,
2: let's see the sweatshirt.
1: That's right. Yeah, Brett. (laughs) I I actually keep... I actually keep a Belmont sweatshirt that my buddy Dylan Ammerman gave me in this room for when it gets cold in here, I'll put it on while I'm doing work.
2: It's a good school.
1: It, you know, <laughs> I,
2: Interesting school, but good school.
1: Right. You know, and business music degrees go really far in life from what I hear.
2: They do They do. You know, I think I was one of like, five people in my graduating class that actually got a full-time job in the music industry when I came out and, uh, it didn't pay anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Really, really worth that private education degree for I, sure.
1: <laughs> I remember I was waiting on a I was waiting on a table. It was like, it was like a, like eight or nine people at this table. And, uh, most of them worked. I think a couple of them were in restaurants and then others were just friends of them. And they were, one of the girls was talking and she was stressing her exams and I was like, don't worry about it. You're going to be fine. Um, I'm guessing you're a mi- music business major and her friends just started laughing. And I said, <laughs> and she, and she was like, yeah, how'd you know? I was like, cause everybody's a music business major, but once you get that degree, don't worry, because you can get a job here
2: Yeah, with a music <laughs>
1: business degree. you will a-
2: certainly stand out in Nashville <laughs> where you want.
1: <laughs> and they started laughing. I was like, no, seriously. And I turned around and I started pointing to people. I was like, music business major, music business major, just, throughout the entire oh. restaurant, like everybody but me. And I was like, I didn't spend 120 grand on college and I got this job. Oh,
2: I hate it for him. But also, I mean, do your research. I didn't. <laughs>
1: right. One of my friends got a vocal performance major from Belmont. Uh, I think he's a bartender
2: yeah now, i started off as a songwriting major and i was like well this isn't a good degree and so then i switched to business because i thought well at least i'll have a business degree at the right. end of the day i want to stay in this i'm not totally up a creek and lo and behold after you know five years of making nothing and having no job stability i decided i didn't want to stay in that industry so it panned out um i think at the end of the day you know one thing that i think is interesting about it it comes back to my beliefs actually i think we push too many people into college and. I get asked all the time now, especially on social media, what did you do to go to school to do what you do? I want to do what you do. And I say, I didn't go to school for this one bit. I worked my butt off and I transitioned into it and you can do that. You right. know, and I think that um that's the right thing about America. You're actually not trapped still. There's still so much opportunity if you're just willing to
0: work.
1: Right. Um so this is this is actually going to be uh this is going to be a little interesting for me because you and I actually agree. So I actually on this subject. You and I agree. So I had to look up opposing points in order to try to play like <laughs> devil's advocate a little bit. So this is going you know,
2: be- to be pro death penalty, So I can even play devil's advocate with myself a little bit. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so. I
1: mean, so I used to be pro as well. And every argument that I had for it, I'm like, now I'm like, well, that's, that's just a it's bad so art. Ar- yeah. That's a bad argument. So I had to throw all of those out the window and actually look for good ones. Um, I don't even know if I found good ones. I just found some that I was like, yeah, that's not that, you know, this person sounds smart. Um, they made it sound decent. So first, um, what I found is that, uh, according to a poll in 2017 by Gallup, 55% of Americans support the death penalty. Now that being said, 55% of Americans means absolutely nothing to me, but, um, Is there any instance in which you feel that the death penalty is acceptable? So
2: I want to sort of cage this with coming from my old point of view, which was very pro. And I think that I when I'm now discussing this, having changed my opinion after being presented with so much evidence that it really became impossible to not change my opinion on it. I still really do understand the feeling of where people are coming from when they're in support of the death penalty. And I think that's important. Um, But also I do want to point out, it's a feeling, it's an emotional argument. I think most people have a gut reaction to the death penalty right out the gate. They either think it's morally wrong or that they think it's morally just, and they kind of stick with that and never look into it further. Um, I always say support of the death penalty runs a mile wide and an inch deep, because the minute you start actually looking into how it's operating, most people cannot stand by it anymore. That being said, I still very much understand the desire for justice, the desire for vengeance, um, the need to feel like you're doing something in the face of evil or violence. I think all of those things make sense. But at the end of the day, you either get the system as it operates or you don't. And we've seen since the late 1970s when it was brought back that all sorts of Uh, mitigating factors and aggravating factors, and all these parameters were put in place to try to ensure that it operated more fairly. But we now have over four decades with the data that proves conclusively it's still not operating efficiently or fairly uh, or in a way that is not killing innocent people. And so at that point, I have to say we can't have it. So whether or not I think there's ever a case where it's justified, maybe but I don't think you can approach the subject in that matter because you don't get to do that. Everybody would say they support it for the worst of the worst. Right. But in their body, that's subjective first and foremost. And secondly, even if we could define that, not what's happening.
1: That's fair. I mean, I did put that in there just to be like, let's throw this one right in at the beginning, see what happens. All right. So, um, yeah. Cause like what, what so many people, whenever I start talking about the death penalty with people, what many of them go to is, what if they molested and raped a child and then killed it? And like, yeah. Do I think that person should be alive? No, I don't, Mm -hmm. but I don't, but at the same time, I don't think it's up to the government to say, this is, this is, this is what we're doing. So, yeah. um, So in my, in my research today, after I got off my other job, um. Anna Marie Schubert from Sacramento County. She is the DA from Sacramento County. Uh she says that most survivors want justice for their murdered friends and family. Repealing the death penalty would not heal their wounds but keep them permanently open. Now, for me, when I when I read that I was like, okay, one I don't know if that's actually true on on whether or not most uh, survivors want justice for their murdered friends and family. Also it is an an emotional gut feeling that you're going to have right at that moment, not a logical one, but how, how would you come, how would you respond to that with somebody?
2: Well, I say everybody wants justice for their loved one, but do they want the death penalty? And the answer is a resounding no, not everybody wants the death penalty. We work with many victims, family members who feel very, very strongly. And, 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 I want to say who've been through different phases within that, you know, some of them from the get go were anti-death penalty and didn't want that and felt like they didn't want that on their hands and uh, uh, felt that it added more grief as they were trying to process what had happened, asking to also deal with that question and putting that on their hands was a lot for them and felt like more trauma. Um, We have others who were told by prosecutors and DAs, just like this woman that it would provide closure for them and who then got drugged through the system for decades and decades and decades. Um, Some of them even going all the way through an execution and then feeling like they were lied to you. This didn't actually give them closure, didn't actually give them this finality. And in reality, the waiting for that finality kept the wound open for them and prevented them from really being able to have closure early on and heal and move forward. And so... I I always really dislike when people try to use victims as pawns in this argument, which is what I think people like that are doing. I would never attempt to speak for all victims. Victims feel vastly different. There's a lot of nuance to how they feel, but it's certainly not true that all of them want this. And so I think it's unfortunate that so often the percentage of victims who might want this are used and the rest are discounted. And I will add as well. When you look at the amount of homicides cleared in this country, we're at an average clearance rate of only 51% nationally. That's not getting justice for all. That's not tough on crime when you're spending millions and millions of dollars to pursue a few cherry-picked death penalty cases, but letting almost half of homicides go completely unsolved. What about those victims?
1: Uh, uh, Yeah, no, that's an amazing point. Uh, One of our regular listeners, uh, Brian Wolf, uh, commented, Uh, He's sorry that he showed up late. It's okay, Brian, we forgive you. But uh, he wants to know what would be alternatives to the death penalty.
2: I think that we're seeing a lot of states over the past 20 years or so that started to implement life in prison without parole. And there's a real difference when you say that people have an opinion that you can get out with a life sentence. And that's true. If someone's given a life sentence, they can be let out before the conclusion of their lives. But life without parole is quite different. That really does mean you cannot be paroled. You're not getting out unless you're given clemency or, or your case is overturned. And so we're seeing a huge downtick in new death sentences since 2000 they're down about 60%. And I would argue that's because juries now have that option in a lot of States that they didn't for a very long time.
1: So, so life, uh, life in prison without parole is kind of a newer, newer thing.
2: In a a lot of states, yes. Um, We're still, I think Texas only added it recently. In Tennessee, actually, last year, one of the people that was executed, uh, Edmund Zagorski, one of his jurors actually spoke out. I think he was convicted in the late 80s, early 90s. And the juror said, if we would had this option of life in prison without parole, we wouldn't have given him the death penalty. We thought he might be an ongoing threat, but what he did, you know, we don't, I wouldn't have thought rose to that level. And I know in the juror room, like others would have felt the same way from our deliberations. And this would have, Caused us to to think differently about this. So, yeah, I think it's had a huge impact on how we're seeing people sentence. I think when juries are given other options where they know someone will not be released back out that they believe to be dangerous, they're going for that option instead of death a lot of the time.
1: Right. So, I mean, thank, thank you to Netflix for this, but um, because of Netflix, Ted Bundy is now trending again. Like everybody, everybody talks about Ted. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I, I saw the documentary of the Ted Bundy tapes and I watched the movie with Zach Efron. Yeah. Zach Efron, not Braff. Um, and, uh, like the movie was okay, I guess. Uh, the Ted Bundy tapes were fun to watch. And when you're watching it, you're like, yeah, this guy deserved to die. But at the same time, did he deserve, did the state do the right thing and being like, okay, we're going to, we're just going to execute you. And so I love
2: And dislike at the same time that Ted Bundy's back in the media so much. I'm just like everybody else. I'm fascinated by serial killers. It's an interesting phenomenon, but the reality is true serial killers, people who are real psychopaths like a Ted Bundy. That's such a rarity in the criminal justice system. That really is less than like 1% of cases that you see. The reality is you don't see very many serial killers. That's why you know their names. And secondly, the other important factor is you really don't see people like Ted Bundy that often who just become violent for no reason that we can see. Right. Typically if you're dealing with people in the criminal justice population. What you quickly find out is that this dichotomy most of us picture between victim and perpetrator is not there. It's typically someone who's one in the same and they typically have had severest abuse and trauma and mistreatment, treatment typically in their childhood before they become violent. It's very rare for someone to just wake up. And become a ted bundy and so the problem with that is that while it's entertaining i think many people get the perception that this is something that happens a lot and um that's it's really difficult when you're trying to actually help people see behind the curtain with the criminal justice system uh but secondly i think one, one thing since i had someone in a facebook debate with me today say what about jeffrey dahmer you don't think you should get the death penalty and yeah, maybe I do, but he didn't. I think if you start looking into these cases of who gets the death penalty, you'll actually be really surprised by who gets it. Oftentimes, the people that I think most would agree are the worst of the worst or who are the serial killers don't get the death penalty. That's right.
1: Dahmer got killed in jail, right?
2: No. Well, he might have. but He was not sentenced to death. He right. was given life. Well, no,
1: I think, I think somebody like beat him to death in jail. I, I think that's how he went out. But That
2: could have. Yeah. But yeah. he wasn't sentenced to death either right. way. Yeah. Um, And neither was neither was one of the 9-11 conspirators. So in reality, when you start digging into who's getting the death penalty, it's really very arbitrary. And I think that's super interesting. If you start looking at the data, it's only about 2% of counties that are bringing the majority of death penalty cases. And to date, all of our executions since reinstatement have come from less than 16% of counties. So it actually has a lot more to do with where the crime is committed versus what the person did when you're looking at determinants for who gets the death penalty.
1: Right. Um, So... When I was younger than I am now, because any story I tell has to be that way, um, I was living in the DC area during the um, the DC sniper guy, yeah, the guy that was driving around him and him and the kid. Um, Mm -hmm. and I believe he got the death penalty, but the kid did not.
2: I think that's right,
1: yeah. Um, and I so back then I was not the same person I am now because if that was the case then that would show absolutely no growth and nobody wants that. Um, but back then I was like, he, he deserves the death penalty. He, he, 100% a hundred percent deserves the death penalty because during that time because I was right like I think I was literally only two miles like where I lived was only a couple miles away from where the, one of the killings happened and everybody was terrified. They said that he was driving around in uh, the D.C. area in a white panel van, which he wasn't for anybody who doesn't know that case. The news put that out and that was a lie. Uh, Well, it was just wrong. I don't know if it was a direct lie. So one day I was at work and a white panel van was parked out front. Nobody came into my restaurant that day. And I was like, can you not park here? He goes, man, I got to do my job. I was like, I get it. But man, (laughs) nobody wants to walk by here right now.
2: Right,
1: right. Um, but back then, I was like, "Yeah, no, he should get the death penalty." By the time he actually got to being uh, executed, I had sort of switched. But when when it was like I I don't even remember that guy's name, but uh, when he was when they, he was in the news for he's about to get executed, I remembered feeling that he should die for everything he did, and I sort of justified my argument that I had back then when that was happening. And even now I'm like that like I I I despise that person as a person. But now I'm like, but did he deserve to die? Not by the hands of the state. Mm-hmm. Um Brian Wolf had a follow-up question. He asked which is more expensive to the taxpayer?
2: By far the death penalty. And this was one thing that really got my attention and initially made me change my stance on it. I think Everybody knows the death penalty is expensive, but when you start digging into how much more expensive it is than life in prison without parole, they should be about the same, you would think if you're comparing it, because most people die on death row. The leading cause of death on death row is natural causes, so typically they are serving life in prison without parole. You would think they would mirror each other, but in reality, the death penalty is about ten times more expensive than life in prison without parole. The actual data differs state to state. You can look up the state studies on um, deathpenaltyinformation.com and compare, but it's at least two million dollars more per case, and the reasons are mostly tied up in the trial. It's not the appellate process, it's not the length of carrying out the execution like many people think. 70% of the cost of death penalty comes from the trial alone, meaning even if the jury doesn't give a death sentence, the taxpayers are still paying a vast amount of money to carry out that trial. And the reasons for that is that the death penalty cases take place over two parts. You have a guilt and innocence phase, and then you have a sentencing phase. You typically are hiring at least two attorneys, if not more on each side. Um, Most people do use public defenders. Those are more hours just by length alone that you're having worked by judges, by court staff, by prosecutors, by DAs. It's a longer jury selection process. You're typically doing um, bringing in more witnesses, which many people don't know. Many witnesses are usually paid when they're there to testify on behalf of the state. Uh, You're doing more lab testing. Also, labs are usually paid on behalf of the state. They're usually paid based off of conviction rates. Right. So there's a lot of problems with how they're paid and all of it, but all of that compounds and makes it vastly more expensive.
1: So they pay the witnesses to be there.
2: This is something I learned when I was working at the beacon center, because we had a pro bono constitutional litigation firm that was attached to the beacon center. And uh, we were working our way through a case. And I first learned that doctors or medical experts could be paid. I'm talking tens of thousands of dollars to come in and give testimony on behalf of the state.
1: That's in that's, that's cr- great. Right? Like,
2: Really, really, really screwed up. Yeah, I was
1: was like, that's criminal. It's not as bad as, you know, murdering a bunch of people. But I mean, that's still criminal.
2: But at the end of the day, our system is supposed to be set up to where it should be what? Better than 100 guilty people go free than one innocent person perish. But when you have incentives being paid based off conviction rates, and essentially you have people giving testimony, labs working on behalf of the prosecutor, that's not okay. That's going to produce bad results. And we're seeing that as we're getting further and further down the line with our wrongful conviction rates.
1: So earlier you were saying that, uh, earlier you were saying that, hang on, where'd my note go crap? Uh, that, uh, whether or not you feel the death penalty is acceptable is an emotional argument. Uh, um, you're like, yeah, that's an emotional argument. Now Bruce fine, who is general counsel general counsel for the center of law and accountability says that the government Uh, argues that saying that the government should never take a human life is an article of faith.
2: I think that you could approach that statement from many different stances. I think if you were looking at this from a faith perspective and, and to be totally upfront, I do look at it from that perspective as well. Personally. Um, I do think that according to my faith, I have a problem with killing other people, whether it's me or the government acting on my behalf which in the U.S. we have a representative government when they are carrying things out. That's essentially me carrying it out. They're acting on my behalf. And so I I think that is unsettling. But I think for many others, including those who are not religious, there is just this overwhelming sense that the government is fallible. It's run by humans. It's fallible. We know that it's prone to error. We, you know, as limited government advocates are so because we know that it's never going to be efficient or effective or really run in a way that, Could ever even compete with private industry, much less uh, a perfect system. So I think there are a lot of people who who don't have a religious aspect to saying that the government shouldn't kill people. It just comes from plain common sense and recognizing that the government can't carry out the mail. Why should we let them carry out sentences of life and death?
1: Yeah. um, So he actually went on and he said uh, that the death penalty honors human dignity by allowing the defendant to be treated as a moral actor. Able to control his own destiny for good or for ill, and I—I I actually took—I—I I took issue with that statement because he—he's already kind of the—the the defendant in—in this—in this, in this uh, example, he has already carried out his life. He's already controlled his destiny for ill now is that on the state to punish him for that? Or is that on whatever higher being you or him or whatever subscribes to? Cause I don't really subscribe to any. Um, so as far as giving the defendant human dignity, I felt like this was just, what's the right word? Cause my, I'm not used to being awake as long as I've been right now. Um, <laughs>
2: Naive, to be honest, I think that it's uh, really at the, at the very nicest way I can put it. It's overtly simplifying the issue because is someone controlling their own destiny, if they have a severe mental illness and they are incapacitated and the reality is altered, is someone controlling their own destiny, if they have an intellectual disability, is someone controlling their own destiny, if they have been abused over and over and over and violated and then act in a cycle of violence. Now, I still think people are responsible for their actions. I believe in holding people accountable. And I think certainly if someone has proven that they're an ongoing danger to society, they should be removed from it. But that being said, I think if you, again, start looking at who's actually getting the death penalty, uh, it's really not the monster that most people have in their mind when they're picturing this. And I think that as a society, we send conflicting messages when we say killing is wrong, but it's okay here well, what makes it okay here? Why, if, if it's okay here, how come we don't kill every murderer? You know, to what end do we, do we stretch this? And I think the more consistent thing to say is that human life has value at all times. And it has value and innate rights that I think are God-given and that cannot be won or lost based on what you do, um, but because of your being. And if we were to recognize that as society and see that as a comprehensive value, I think that would go a long way, actually, in evolving us Uh, to a, uh, to a more educated point in our culture.
1: Um, Yeah. So like, like you were saying, like, it's not on the government to uh, be the government can't deliver mail correctly. Like how do we expect them to be able to carry these things out? And then you throw on top that society says it's not okay to kill, but it's okay in this case. Now that is also my stance when it comes to, you know, wars that, I don't think that we should be in, which is, you know, all of them. Um, That's how I feel about that. That's how I feel about uh, political coups and assassinations that we put on. But everybody says that this is fine. These things over here are okay. But what this guy did here, bad, which I agree, bad. But I don't really see that big of a difference between these two columns. Mm -hmm. And I think that is where most people have their disconnect. These people, this guy, this person, killed one or more people and, uh, without their, without being involved in this group here. And that is where just because he's not involved in that group makes it okay. makes it wrong or it makes it okay if you're involved in that group. And that is where most of the people that I disagree with on this subject, they're a hundred percent with no, no, those people can do it. The people who can't run a healthcare website are totally capable of knowing when to kill somebody and it's okay mm-hmm.
2: um, yeah i'm often asked um how i feel given my background of working on second amendment issues which i'm probably the biggest second amendment nut you'll ever meet uh, i love the second amendment i carry and i'm always asked how do i justify that and i say it's, it's very simple it's a very black and white issue in my mind if i am being threatened and i'm acting in self-defense i have every right to act in self-defense and to fully carry that out um, same is true for war. If we're acting in self-defense, if there's an existential threat, then I think we have every right to defend ourselves and defend our rights and defend our personage. But what we cross the line with is when we start saying, but what about these exceptions to that? What about, you know, these proactive things? And I think we don't have a consistent value as a society on these issues. And it shows. I think that it, it not only shows in the death penalty, I think when you don't have a comprehensive view on the value of human life, it shows in many other areas as well.
1: Right. Now... One of the uh, arguments that I hear in favor, well, it's not really in favor of the death penalty, but it's just anti abolitionist. Um, that a, a lot of abolitionists will uh, claim the Constitution for, and they'll say, you know, it's not constitutional. Uh, the Eighth Amendment, I believe, right? Yeah, that's what I'm going okay. with. Yeah. The Eighth Amendment says that this is not constitutional for cruel and unusual punishment. And I've heard other people say that because of the F- Fifth Amendment, Yeah, I haven't pulled up on that one. Uh, Because of the Fifth Amendment, uh, it's okay for us to do this. Have you? I have never heard this argument once.
2: I often hear, and obviously, when you get into the litigation side of this issue, you see a lot of back and forth over the constitutionality of the death penalty. Um, It's it's not my argument, to be totally honest. I don't think that we have to get into it, whether it's constitutional or not, whether it's biblical or not. Same thing maybe, maybe, maybe the premise is, but it doesn't matter because it was certainly not supposed to operate like this. <laughs> and so that's really the problem. You can be in favor of the definitely and think it's okay in theory all day long, but I don't understand how you can be in favor of it in practice when you really start looking at how it's actually being carried out.
1: Right. So when you say how it's being carried out, are you talking about the cost of it? Or are you talking about the demographics of who is being put in the de-
2: Innocence issues are the first big issue. Uh, That's certainly the number one thing that really shifted my opinion on it, followed by the cost. We've got a, a system overrun with innocence issues. I think many people still think this is an anomaly. It's not. We've had 165 people exonerated from death row. That equals one person exonerated for every 10 executions in this country. And that's people who were exonerated. That's a really big burden to become exonerated. That doesn't even count the people who've been released over potential innocence issues, who took Alfred pleas, or who had their cases overturned in other manners. It also doesn't count the thousands of people who have been proven wrongfully convicted um, over homicide charges, but who were lucky enough to not get the death penalty. We have too much innocence in this system to be carrying this out and i think that it's very reckless that we continue to operate when we know that um secondly the arbitrariness of it It, i mentioned the location it goes further than that if you further break it down on who's getting the death penalty after where the crime is committed the next biggest determinant is whether or not someone can afford a good attorney if you can you're probably not gonna get the death penalty if you can't good luck uh you see one in four people on texas's death row that had a public defender that was later disbarred or disciplined You see 73 percent of people on north carolina's death row that were sentenced before there was an indigent defense fund and so we have a system that really is biased in a socioeconomic manner that i think is unjust and that that would be unconstitutional and then thirdly if you start looking at the race of the victim that becomes a big factor in who gets the death penalty or not in california you're three times more likely to get it if you kill a white person than if you kill a black person or hispanic person in Louisiana, you're 96% times more likely to get it if you kill a white person than if you kill a minority. I think that what that says is we are valuing victims differently and we're placing a higher price on some people's lives than others and I, I don't know how anyone can justify that.
1: Right. And so while, while I was doing my research on this, one of the uh, arguments I saw was about, was about race and um, the guy said that since 1974 I believe um, the stats on how many people that were executed that were white, that were black, that were Hispanic, that were other, uh, they sort of matched up. Like the, the black was definitely higher than how many, than the percentage of blacks that lived in the community. But at no point did he ever go into, um, at no point did he ever go into the percentage of people that were convicted of, or that were, that received the death penalty for killing a white person versus a black person versus some other minority, and that that's actually really interesting to me because that that was left out of that just completely. Of course, it was. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no that 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 stat blew my mind when you said that. I was just kind of like, oh, that makes so much sense. But ninety six percent in Louisiana, which I mean, granted, the only parts of Louisiana I've ever really been to are heavily minority populated, um, but. Like that, that blew my mind 96% more likely.
2: And we see this in the news. I think there's something that is a bit unsurprising to me, at least when I started digging into that data. Um, When I was in college, I remember saying, if I were to disappear, you'd see my face all over the media because I'm a young white girl. Right. I'd be everywhere. But when's the last time you saw that happen for a young black girl who disappears? You know, we just, we don't give the same attention to crime victims in this country, and to break it down even in the past race, when you start getting you know, at socioeconomic status, you know, if you kill a police officer, you're almost certainly getting a death penalty. But you kill a prostitute, I doubt you're going to get the death penalty. And so we've got to, you know, wrestle with those questions as a society. Like, why do we value victims' lives differently? And I think that comes down to the fact that we don't actually see all humans ha- having innate equal value at the end of the day.
1: Right. So earlier, I believe that was this year. It was either this year this year. Or- last year, uh, Trump was on Fox and friends. Sure. I'm going with all of this. Trump was on Fox and friends. And, uh, the guy had murdered the two cops. Uh, the illegal had, I believe he was an illegal. He murdered the two cops and he, and Trump was on there talking about the death penalty. He's like, is it right? Is it wrong? I don't know. But we know that he will not be killing any more cops after this or something along those lines. So when you have the president who has just, this fan base of a president. I have never like, it's either you love him or you hate him. And then there's like eight of us in the middle. They're like, eh, whatever. Uh, He's just as bad as any of the others, I guess. Um, But like the fan base that loves him are so rabid that all of a sudden, any, any one of them at that moment, that was kind of teetering on the death penalty is going to be, Oh, Trump's in favor of the death penalty, especially if a cop gets killed, which I'm not going to get into that. But uh, especially if a cop gets killed. But so now I'm OK with the death penalty. And, and if anybody murders somebody, they better be holding a badge or in fatigues.
2: I mean, I obviously Trump's statement on the death penalty have been not what I would wish to hear from our president. But that being said, it hasn't hurt the movement. And in fact, I don't know. We're, this year has been incredible uh, with definitely repeal. We actually have 11 states. I think there's one more coming down the pipeline that have had Republican sponsored bills to repeal the death penalty. That's amazing. I actually see this as an issue where the battleground is at the state level. I think that's where it should be handled as a limited government person. I think it is up to the states and I wanna see them repeal it. And we're down to only 30 states that still have it on their books. Of those that have it, uh, 11 of them, so over a third, haven't used it in at least a decade or more. And so you're seeing a real downtick in the death penalty with or without Trump statements. And I think that you're seeing a real insurgence of Republicans actually coming forward and leading on this issue at the state level, which is pretty incredible to watch. And so, you know, I wish he felt differently. I wish that we could sit down and have a conversation about it. But even if not, I don't think it's hurting the what's happening right. at the ground.
1: So Tennessee, does Tennessee still have it or no?
2: Tennessee still has it. And up until last year, they were counted. They were the 12th state that hadn't used it in a decade or more. Uh, they began using it again last year it was a bit surprising actually they were the state that executed the most people right behind texas so last year was the fourth year in a row the country executed fewer than 30 people there were only 25 executions they occurred in only eight states and over half of them were in texas and then tennessee had the next most amount which was um just unusual for tennessee it's not a state that's been super active they'd only executed uh, oh, I wanna say six people since reinstatement up until that point, and they've had three people exonerated from their death rows. Um so yeah, I I don't know what to think about it to be honest. <laughs> it's been a, a little out of character right. for
1: Tennessee. I mean, there's been a bunch of stuff happening in Tennessee that I've been like, that makes <laughs> it been a rough week in Tennessee. <laughs> yeah. Like that's that's not the Tennessee I remember right there. Um right uh spike cohen what about my co-host spike cohen uh if you don't watch this show regularly uh says what about dylan roof it's
2: a good question because i'm here in south carolina this week and dylan roof is um it's a tough case it's a it's a case i still get emotional about and uh, i think a lot of people in south carolina feel very personally attached to that the one thing that always stands out in my mind about the dylan roof case though was the families. Um, the very first hearing they had who multiple um, different family members came forward and said, we forgive you. We don't want the death penalty. This is not something that we want on our hands. This isn't going to help us. We want to forgive and move forward. And I think the reason I get so emotional because as a Christian, that is what I think my faith is supposed to be able to do and which is really superseding human ability and human understanding and able to get to this place where you can forgive someone who's done something so horrible. And I just thought that those families testimonies were something I'll never forget. And it doesn't seem like they were listened to in that case.
1: Yeah. That, that was actually one of the most beautiful out of that scenario, like not much beauty could come of it, but with that scenario happening, that was actually a really beautiful moment where all the families came in and said that they forgave him and that they didn't want the death penalty. Yeah. You I don't get real emotional unless it's a like old episodes of scrubs. And I don't even understand that, but, um, like I'll just watch an episode of scrubs and be like, Oh yeah, JD, I feel you. But like like,
2: with soundtrack, I cry every time I listen to it. My mom is like, why are you crying?
1: <laughs> I don't know, mom. It doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, with a uh, with in that moment like I was watching that and I was just like oh, humanity, you're not awful. You're not terrible. You 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 learned forgiveness somehow. And that that just blew my mind. Um So which states still have the death penalty? Cuz you said that only 8 of them do. 30
2: of them still have it. Okay. 30 uh, of them still have it. More than a decade, and last year only eight of them that's what carried I mean. on.
1: Out. Right, that's what I meant. Eight, eight carried out on. It.
2: It. Obviously, very concentrated in the South. Um, I believe it was Texas, Florida, Tennessee. You're really testing my knowledge right now. <laughs> Maybe Arkansas. Um, I'd have to pull up the rest of the list. No, no, that's fine. No, that's what It was definitely all concentrated in the in the
1: South. Right region. in the South region. So yeah, I, I thought I remembered that uh, Florida had executed somebody for the first time in a really long time last year, and well, the
2: state that has the second most executions behind Texas. So you have Texas, then Florida, and then I think Georgia that okay. carried out the um It probably was Tennessee that you're thinking of because Tennessee had been a really long time.
1: Okay, possibly, possibly. Yeah, and I'd look at Tennessee as a home state too. So. I, um, but, um, Oh, I so had a question about Florida. Crap. I need to stop waking up early to on show days. Um, my, my brain is like, you worked all morning. What are you doing? Um, you're supposed to be like asleep. And I'm like, no, I'm not. It's nine o'clock. Um, so like, I know that Florida has definitely executed a ton of people in the past. Um, and I grew so I grew up in Virginia and I believe that when I was growing up it was legal there, but now it is not. And
0: they still
2: have it.
1: They still have it? They
2: still have it. I don't think they've used it recently, but okay. they still have it on the books.
1: Gotcha. I think the last person that they probably executed was the older of the DC snipers.
2: Could have been. Right.
1: Yeah. Um and I remember before that it had been forever. Um, but anytime that I read about somebody who is going into the death penalty, uh, like who's about to be executed. You get the last minute pushes from organizations like conservatives concerned about the death penalty who are trying to stop this from happening. What is the success rate on this, on these hopes?
2: Not high. Okay. Um, yeah, it's not high. I don't, I don't know the exact percentage. It's definitely uh, once you get down to this, you know, the wire, it's a hell Mary and it, Typically, it's up to the governor whether or not he's going to act. Um, we did see Ohio pull an execution last year for a guy who multiple jury members came out and said, had we had other options, we wouldn't have given him the death penalty. And um, So we have seen governors act. We've seen Republican governors act. But it's, it's not typical. It's, it's, a, it's a heavy thing. We are seeing a lot of Republican governors really start to kind of put effecto moratoriums in place, like we saw the new Ohio governor do where he basically is saying, look, I'm not going to carry out executions under my watch until I have more information. I'm going to be looking into this, which I think is wise. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it, it's just very difficult once you get down to this process to put it on one person and, and have that be their decision. I think that's why you saw California's governor recently put an effective moratorium in for people who are really right. struggling with issue and grappling with it. And who, you know, I think some have their minds made up, like Governor Newsom. I think others, like Governor DeWine, are really struggling with it and want to take time to be thoughtful and think through that, which I applaud. And it's a complicated issue. You know, I didn't change my mind on it overnight. I certainly took a lot of time to research and look into multiple different studies to get to that point. And so I think we should encourage all governors to do that and to really look through it and develop a comprehensive stance. Because when you're going case by case, it becomes very difficult, I think, to decide.
1: Right. So I remember there was, there was a case here in Florida and Pam, Pam Bondi was the, uh, attorney general down here who I disliked that woman just in general. And what she did here was in my mind, even kind of worse, uh, than how much I normally dislike her. Uh, she, uh, somebody was scheduled for an execution. She stayed the execution, which, okay. I was like, all right, that's cool but she only stayed the execution because she had a scheduling conflict in which she had a fundraising dinner for her reelection campaign on the same night. So she stayed the execution just so she could go raise money and then ended up doing it later. Oh, like on that one, I was like, well, yeah, you stayed the execution, but literally for the most selfish reason you possibly could have.
2: Yeah. That's something. (laughs)
1: Yeah. No, that's, that is definitely, that is definitely something. Um, and she, I mean, she just isn't a night like she wants to make a weed illegal everywhere all over again. She, she does not care about civil liberties at all. And she is very pro death penalty except on days that she has fundraisers. Um, and she's only like four feet 11. She's tiny. Um, She is, she's tiny. Um, and not, she wasn't nice to me either, which makes it even worse. She was the only one that was mean to me when I met everybody. Uh, and I'm like, man, you're a midget. Um, so what, so what are you guys working on now? What do you guys have up in the pipeline? Uh, as far as conservatives concerned about the death penalty, do you have anything coming up? Any big projects that you're working on or,
2: Well, you know, we're a nonprofit, so we're always working on advocacy and education. We do that all over the country, whether it be through speaking events or different conferences that we're at. Um, We have chapters that we're launching. So we have just launched a chapter in Louisiana, getting ready to launch chapters in Texas and Virginia this year as well. And so that's really exciting. We're looking for people on the ground to be kind of our, you know, grassroots soldiers when there's issues and people can lend their voice to. Raise awareness about why these values don't align with people who have conservative and libertarian values. Right. And so that's really exciting. We're of course, continuing to follow all the bills. A lot of the sessions are winding down at this point, um, but there are still few that are ongoing. So we'll be continuing to follow those bills and then getting ready for next year session as well. I think you're going to see, um, we've got New Hampshire that's looking like they'll have a veto override at the end of the month, which is really exciting. And then I think Wyoming will be coming back strong next year. They, really came out of the gate with an amazing showing this year, Fell only four votes shy of passing a bill to repeal the death penalties. So I certainly think we'll be hearing from them next year. Utah's looking really promising for next year. Colorado has been making a lot of gains. So always stuff going on <laughs> never slows down.
1: Yeah. I, I figure that that is one of the, that's one of the fields that if you're going to work in advocacy for, you are constantly going to have stuff going on because it's going to be a long time before we get to a point where there is no more death penalty in the U S.
2: Yeah. We still have a lot of work to do. Uh, it, it, it feels like there's just so much movement that sometimes I do worry, like, am I going to have a job? (laughs) But that's a good worry to have. You know, I think we're always trying to work ourselves out of a job in this kind of industry. And, uh, you know, each, each year, if we can just knock two or three States out and keep going, we'll be in business. So I think that we're showing great progress. I think that if you look at the amount of republican lawmakers that have been sponsoring bills and the increase since 2000 and that it's drastic. Uh, we I mean at least 10 times as now, as many are doing that. And so if that keeps up and we see these people really start championing this and moving forward, you can see big things happen even in red states, which is it's really cool to see.
1: No, that and that is amazing. That is definitely amazing to see. Um, so at the beginning uh, I kind of plugged that you haven't uh, column for Newsmax called "Life and Liberty." Um, basically, that's just you, that's when when my viewers and listeners go to that, it's going to be you ranting about the death penalty, isn't it? Yeah,
2: it's just me ranting. It's just me like <laughs> completely like pissed off and ranting all the time. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's it's it is very focused on the death penalty and sometimes other criminal justice reform as well. but really trying to shed a light on what's happening and you know, it makes me mad. I always say that's one of the hardest parts of my job is actually writing that column because as you're researching, you just get even madder and madder when you're looking at everything happening. So it's a, it's got a bit of, a bit of gusto to it.
1: <laughs> I remember, so I remember when you and I first met at Yalcon, um, you actually, I don't think that you were talking about, uh, the column, but I, I remember talking to you and I was like, yeah, I used to be, I used to be, a." pro-death penalty and now i'm kind of on the fence but leaning more toward anti-death penalty and you kind of gave me the same you know it's a mile it's a million thousand miles long but only a mile deep and the longer you've whatever you said earlier and the longer that you sit there like you realize that it's just really shallow arguments and they're pointless and then everything starts making you mad 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 and mad and so i kind of like look, started looking into stuff and i was like yeah she was right this is <laughs> this is really stupid that we do this like it just The cost alone, the the cost alone, which Brian Wolf, uh, who asked which is more expensive to the taxpayer, Uh, after you after you went through your stats on what it costs for a death penalty trial versus a life in life in prison trial, uh, he said, wow, I've officially changed my mind solely based on cost. And I think he may have signed off.
2: You know, if you hold government <laughs> or at least recognize that, you know, the problems with government, it, I think the costs are going to go under your skin. It's infuriating. And not only, you know, not only are, is it expensive, but what are we not spending that on? And when you're looking at the justice system, what we're not spending it on is solving more crimes. and What we're not spending it on is on programs that actually work to deter crime and make us safer. So it's not only money down the drain, but there's a lot of opportunity costs associated with that, too.
1: Right. Um, so. Do you have anything else that you want to push and or anything or plug or?
2: conservativesconcern.org. If people want to get involved, that's our website. They can check us out, find out what our chapters are, figure out ways to get involved, shoot us a message. Uh, we're on social media at our acronym, CCATDP, and Conservatives Concerned on Facebook. So hook up with us, follow us. Always lots of information and news coming out so you won't be bored.
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, coming on. Uh, if you want to give me a minute to do the closeout and the closing song, if you want to hang out for a second afterwards, so I can kind of talk to you a little bit more, uh, I would greatly appreciate it. It's up to you though. Uh, you can just sign off and I couldn't stop you. Um, but, um, again, thank you so much for coming on. Spike Cohen says that he hates that. I didn't note his sarcasm in his, what about Dylan roof, uh, comment. Cause he did use it and I knew that, but he also called me Jason on his show last night and I hated that. So I figured I wasn't going to say anything. Um to everybody else, thank you guys for tuning in. Uh remember that tomorrow we have an all-new episode of Mr. America the Beard of Truth with Jason Lyons. Then we're taking two days off before we come back for next week with a brand new episode of Mr. America the Beard of Truth. Then next Tuesday you have Spike and me right here at Muddied Waters of Freedom. And then next Wednesday you get Spike Cohen all by his lonesome probably with a guest um, for my fellow Americans. And then next Thursday, we are right back here for the writer's block with, I forgot to set up the music uh, with a brand new guest that I've never had on before. And I'm really glad that he and spike have ironed out their rivalry. So that way I don't have to feel bad about having him on um, again. Thank you all so much. Tune in to all of the shows. Please like, please share. Please share. Uh, Please like, please share, and be sure to rate us on iTunes and Spotify and whatever your podcasting app is. Um, Again, thank you all so much, and uh, have a great weekend.
0: Room enough for one, there must be room enough for two. I'll sail the good ship, you into the sunset. Sipping on the savory water till my liver turns blue. Santa. Santa. This is broadcasting the And the lengths I'll go to convince the whole damn world I don't need anybody's head